ridiculous. Welcome, friends, to Perfect Stranger Things, a weekly dance of joy for your eardrums. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, comic Steve Osborne and I cover The Weirdo on Maple Street. This is the second episode of season one. couple notes before we get going. You can send any emails to pst at baldmove.com. That's P is in perfect, S is in stranger, T is in things at baldmove.com. Now, you may recall that last week I said that the pilot episode for Stranger Things was the best pilot episode on any television series ever, and I stand by that. I might like this episode even better. I can't wait to hear what Steve says about it. But before we get to Steve, let's pause to hear a spoonful of wisdom from the man with the mustache that could launch a thousand ships, the always folksy, always wise, always handsome, Wilford Brimley. You got a story in here. This is a damn story you ever read. Tell you what we're gonna do. We're gonna sit right here and talk about it. Now we'll talk all day if you want it. It's the right thing to do. Steve, we're covering The Weirdo on Maple Street. And in preparation for this, I watched The Nightmare on Elm Street for the very first time last night. Is that right? Very first time, and that is some hot garbage. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's it's real bad. It was a goofy movie, man. It was just... The acting is horrible. I mean, I guess it's back in the day, right? It's a classic movie. What is it, 84? 84. That's right, 84. Yeah, my instinct is to sort of uh, defend it, you know, given the time period. But 84 was a pretty great year for pop culture. (laughs) Um, So it's not like... (laughs) It's not like talkies just happened. Yeah. there's there'd been there'd been attempts at cinema yeah no and look i mean we're pretty selective of the movies that we watch from that period um like for instance when when did escape from new york come out about that about that same period john carpenter is i think hyper self-aware in my opinion well, and you've got you know same time period as alien i mean we both really enjoyed alien um, right it could be a genre thing. I feel like, of course, I'm going to give sci-fi a little bit more leash. Sure. But also, I do like thrillers. I just have never been into slashers, uh, slasher yeah, yeah. flicks. But this one was not scary at all. It was it was laughably bad. Interesting, right? So you're looking at Nightmare on Elm Street through the lens of all the impact that it's had all the sequels that we've seen i've uh, not i haven't seen any of those i'm totally well, but, but, when but it I mean, comes to them but in terms of uh being a definite like an iconic part of our there's no question world. it is an iconic movie and an important Fre- probably Kruger, an I mean, important he's, movie freddy krueger's arguably on the rushmore of slashers right i mean yeah in terms of i mean you've got just you got jason uh you've got michael myers you've got freddy krueger and i mean I guess you could throw in maybe a maybe a Chucky 
you know, <laughs> if you're interested in, in that type of thing. Well, you know, I wouldn't maybe, just, maybe I wouldn't just put, yeah, I wouldn't just put him on the Rushmore. I think in my childhood, Freddy Krueger, Freddy Krueger, Freddy Krueger Mellencamp, <laughs> Freddy Krueger Mellencamp, before he changed his name. Yeah, Little Pink Houses on Elm Street. <laughs> That was, he was the epitome of a slasher. Right. Like, as I was a kid growing up, just the lore around the playground. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, people would pretend to be Freddy Krueger. You know, Jason was kind of second banana. Well, yeah, right. And, it, and that and that was, so that, I think that's what makes Freddy Krueger even more uh, compelling is that Jason, I think, up until that point, was still kind of considered like the horror icon. Freddy Krueger comes on the scene, and what does he do differently than a lot of these other slashers? He talks, right? That's a big deal. So not, not very well. No, well, I mean, he's dude, dude got burned. He's very got interesting problems. fashion choices. Super interesting fashion choices, right? Like, I mean, like, there's a lot about Freddy Krueger that's like, you know, hey, you know, does he need the hat too? Like, I mean, he's got the fedora. so much so he's that got- in the beginning of the film, when the two girls are realizing that they had the same dream. The first thing that Nancy mentions is the sweater, like the color of the striped sweater. Mm-hmm. Second billing is the glove that has knives on it. Right. Yeah. The sweater is the most horrific part of Freddy Krueger. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what's crazy, right? Like the a one glove with knives, you would assume would be sufficient. But the sweater becomes like, it shows up like, I mean, if you see that red and green sweater, like, you know, it immediately. So it's pretty great. But so, but then, so, so, so yeah. So I guess the thing is, is that it comes out, you have a, a slasher that, that gets you when you're most vulnerable, right. When you're asleep. Mm-hmm. So there's no, like, you can't like the idea of like trying to sleep off, like being scared yeah. is now not an option. All right. So like, so now the idea that you have to stay away, like, like com- the, the notion is compelling. So the critique of the first one, it'd be curious to see what you would have thought of it if you'd seen it when it first came out and there's no no other Well, uh, all right. So nineteen eighty four. I'm ten years old in eighty four. Um, no way your parents are letting you see Nightmare Elm Street. Dating Shelley Phelps. <laughs> hey, not too shabby. Uh it 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 lasted very a very short amount of time. Well let's let's talk about the fact that you're a ten year old and you're dating. I mean that seems a little mature. I, it was one of those things. I just resolved. I said, you know what? It's time to get a girlfriend. Yeah, no, uh, I, mean, I just, t- t- I just, you're not decided, getting any younger. <laughs> I just decided I'm just going to ask, uh, as, as you did back in the day, I asked Shelly Phelps to go with me. I was, I was just going to say, you had to, the only way that you could phrase it would be, would you go with me? Would you go with me? And, um, and then we didn't talk again for about two weeks. And it, it, this was none of this was very well. Uh, so you got married. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then divorced because I wore a captain's hat to oh, school. Man. Whoa! And her friends, she didn't mind the captain's hat, but her friends made her break up with me. Oh no! Her friends, they were a hundred percent in the right. <laughs> I mean, look, it's one thing to be a 10 year old, you know, Casanova, <laughs> but man, you got to lose the cabin's hat. You, if I may, if I may borrow from Kendrick, be humble. <laughs> <laughs> Is 
Freddy scarier or a little bit less scary if he's wearing a captain's hat? No, captain hat. Like immediately, I got chills. <laughs> Think about this. I'm talking full, like yacht regalia. Like I'm talking. He's got an ascot. He's got like a smoking jacket and the claw. Dude, that is. He's Captain Kruger. <laughs> he gets promoted. Oh um, my word! Of course, that brings to me back to season three of Stranger Things because, of course, Steve Harrington has to wear a sailor's outfit in that. Yeah. Oh man. Ooh, I cannot wait to get back to that. That, unfortunately, Steve Harrington, he really loses something uh, by season three. But in this season, in this episode, Steve, Steve Harrington is is he's oh, man, he's the man. He's, he is he's like a hairsprayed angel dropped to earth. <laughs> when he open when he blows open those double doors, uh and he's got trooper going in the background. Yeah. Raise a little bit of hell. Oh yeah. Uh, holy moly, I thought this this is uh Oh, and you know, the I guess the other thing is that you know, after watching uh Nightmare on Elm Street, it's very, very clear that that scene the the party at the harrington's is okay, borrowing yeah. from nightmare all right so steve i've got um a six-sided die today okay because i've identified six storylines so if we do run into a goocher it's really bad news got it because this is a six-sided die if an eight comes up we've made a terrible mistake <laughs> so yeah at this point kruger's in the house all right, here we go. I'm rolling it. We got a number five, Steve. All right, this is uh, Chief Hopper and the cops. I'm going to go ahead and read my synopsis. Hopper has been searching for Will Byers all night with nothing to show for it. He shows up at the Byers, thinks that the fried phone receiver is weird, but is skeptical about Joyce's claim that she heard Will's breathing on the other end of the phone call. He is visibly upset when Joyce mentions his daughter. He decides to go track down Lonnie, Will's deadbeat dad. Later that day, Hopper, Officer Powell, Officer Callahan, and the search party return to the woods and keep searching until they reach the reservoir cliffs. Hopper is called over to Benny's and stands over Benny's dead body. He notes that it looks like a suicide. When questioning Benny's fishing buddy, Hopper discovers that a child about Will's height was spotted at Benny's Burgers the day before. Hopper thinks it might be Will. That night, the group finds a fragment of Elle's lab gown at a sewage pipe opening. The pipe leads to Hawkins' lab. I'm so glad number five came up, Steve. I just thought it was Hopper's storyline in this show was brilliantly done. Yeah, and it just the economy of of time in which they they do so much to develop these characters and how quickly you're on board. Yes, I mean obviously, like, and they're they're playing with a lot of classic tropes, but they play with them in such a way that it doesn't feel like here we go again. Mm-hmm. It's like you're almost excited. It's like you feel like you're seeing people you've already been interested in. Like mm-hmm. it's amazing how that works, right? Like you're introduced to people, but it's like you've already feel like you're into their to their lives and you mm-hmm. want to see what's next. I mean, that, it is an amazing rewatch in that regard. Well, and they're able to do this by reflecting characters off each other. So Hopper is talking about like, Hey, come on, it's breathing on the other end of phone. You're in an emotional state, you know, and she's of course like, you think it's will, of course you think it's will. And then 
Joyce looks back at him and says, you would know your daughter's breathing, wouldn't you? And all of a sudden, her brokenness is reflecting off his brokenness. And you're able to tell both of their stories at the same time. So economy of space is a really great way to frame this because in that short amount of time, you know everything you need to know about these characters. This guy understands her plight in a way that no one else can because he's lost a daughter. But they didn't have to hit you over the head with it. Right. It was just that that brief echo of a dialogue there. And all of a sudden, now Hopper is a three-dimensional character. Well, and one and one thing I think really is helpful, right? Like, so we're see we get to see everything, so we know that, like, hey, we know it's will. We know that there's a creature. We know all this stuff, right? So, but even with the interaction with Hopper and his skepticism, sometimes you're watching something her you know, like a horror thing or whatever, and there's always mm-hmm. the skeptic, and you're just like, oh, come on, man, come on. Like this one, you're like, no, I get, I get, I totally get where he's coming from. Like, I, 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 it's woven in such a way where like I don't feel anxious i mean i'm anxious that 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 we're not getting the resolution but at the same time it's like i totally understand why he would think this the like why you would think that she's just being hysterical so it's like it's done and it doesn't take it to too far of these extremes that become so unbelievable so that it's like yeah this all comes out very logically yeah you're anxious because what's going to happen and you understand every delay Mm -hmm. every bit of skepticism delays uh you know any kind of resolution but the skepticism makes perfect sense and all of that interaction is so it's such an organic growth of these characters and like i said we, we get to see a little bit more about each one of them and you go well this is perfect any other police officer would have completely discounted it and we would have moved on but because there's enough of a connection there's enough resonance in the situation that now he may be more compelled to take it a step further the other part of this hopper narrative that really got me was that hopper's perspective is completely plausible when he's mistaken 11 for will Mm. So he's looking for a missing boy, and of course, uh, he hears from Benny's fishing buddy that there was a boy. That's what he calls him. There was a boy in the diner. And so from Hopper's view, he's totally justified in the mistake. At the same time, at least three storylines are being interweaved here. You've got the Hopper storyline, you've got the Eleven storyline, and of course, you've got the Will storyline, and they're all coming together in a way that's completely mistaken he thinks that there's been a will sighting and in fact there hasn't been there's been an 11 sighting but you understand his perspective perfectly you know that's exactly what any smart cop would think in that position and so at that point you're not thinking well this guy he's mistaken he's dumb you can still relate to him you still are rooting for him because of course you know that's that's what any reasonable person would think in that situation Right. And you're also on board with the idea that, look, there's I don't know everything that's going on. I'm willing to bet that there's an overlap. You find L and you're yes. probably you're in some way you're getting closer to Will. Like, that's the thought. Right. Mm-hmm. And and this episode does help with that because, you know, obviously L L seems to know or she knows enough. She uh, knows something. She knows something for sure. Is Hopper. Yeah, Hopper becomes kind of a comical character later on. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit more jokey. He's a little bit more comic relief, right? In this first, in these first couple episodes, I'm not getting any of that vibe. I mean, this is a, he's a really wounded creature. Well, I mean, there's something to be said, and if we want to take the Nightmare on Elm Street discussion we had earlier, um, mm-hmm. you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 
the first one is not particularly it's not not played for laughs mm-hmm. <laughs> for you it's not played for scares or anything but um it's not played for laughs second one is not really played for laughs but by the time you get to like three four five like there's going to be jokes there's going to be a light-hearted sense that makes makes the right. the drama and the horror almost a little like not even just un, like not easing it but sort of uh, it complicates right. it in some ways, right? The, yeah. the humor can complicate the, the and it kind of disarms you as a viewer. And I think that, you know, there's, there's something to be said for once, once this world gets developed, um, you can, you can do that. You can make a little bit more of a lighthearted touch on certain things, yeah. but then it's actually disarming the, the viewers even more. Yeah. I think early on here, Dustin is the comic relief in these first couple episodes, but I was also thinking, when did Beverly Hills cop come out? Uh, 86, 85, 85. So that kind of makes sense because until Beverly Hills Cop, you really didn't have funny cops. But I guess the, the question is, before that movie, did you have the the cop that was also the comic relief? I think there were a lot of films where like there was gritty, you know, no-nonsense cops, you know, dirty, hairy kind of guys. Right. Yeah, because it's interesting if you look at uh, one of Eddie Murphy's first movies, it's 48 Hours. Nick Nolte's the gritty cop. That's right. He's, he's the, the, the convict that is running mm-hmm. alongside to help him with the case. He's comic relief alongside. The idea of the police officer being the comic relief, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know that Beverly Hills Cop created it, but it certainly mm-hmm. put a different spotlight on it. So I guess the uh, Hopper's character in this first season is sort of like those early 80s cops, like the Nolte kind of cops, the Chief Brody kind of cops uh, from Jaws. But then, of course, in later seasons, I don't know, like maybe he's a little bit like Tom Hanks and Turner and Hooch, Mm -hmm. a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more funny. Um, I'm going to roll him again, Steve. Do it. We got a number three. Number three is Jonathan Byers. Joyce is spiraling into crazy town, and Jonathan is trying to ground her with eggs, toast, and photocopy assistance. After Hopper's visit, Jonathan tries to dissuade him from going to Lonnie's place and offers to go himself. Hopper tells him to stay with his mother. After pinning up some missing posters, Jonathan hits the highway and listens to the clash. He has a flashback memory of a conversation he had with Will. He arrives at Lonnie's, blows by Cynthia, looks for Will until he's confronted by his dad. It turns out Lonnie is an even bigger asshole than advertised. Jonathan leaves. That night, he goes out to take photographs when he's distracted by the Harrington house party. He photographs the party from the shadows. I loved Jonathan's question to Hopper about tracing the call. There's a little moment where... They're talking about the call from Will, and Jonathan kind of inserts himself and says, can you trace the call? I just thought that was a perfect window into a teenager perspective on police work in the 80s. Right, yeah. Can't you <laughs> solve this? Can't you, just, can't you just do the thing? We just had this idea about call tracing that it was like, you just trace the call. That's it. You, that, yeah. These crimes should all be solved. Just trace the call. The idea is that there's fingerprints everywhere, digitally, whatever. It's all it's just, and and the police have access to this. The police our, our, have access to like you know cutting edge technology. 
don't you guys have a database? <laughs> I love that little bit. I was like, of course, that's how we all thought tr- call tracing worked. You know, you just go to your, your supercomputer and the face of the murderer comes up. Well, and, it, and it's good for this character, too, because I think we talked a little bit about how he kind of thrust into this sort of paternal role. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And it's easy to sometimes forget as, a, as an audience member, as well as like a parent that he's a kid. This, this, he's a kid. Right. And I think that that's really key. And I think that that's an important thing. Cause I know it's easy. My daughter is always, always very mature and she always thought kind of bigger than her age and Mm -hmm. so i had a different level of expectations for her like maturity in almost every other aspect so like if she would do something that was typically teenagery i'd Mm -hmm. be like where did that come from it's like well that's the norm that's what you that's the expect like that's always got to be the understood baseline of what this person's operating from they're still acquiring information on how to be a person and so i think it's really key because it's like in many ways he's having to be so much more than just a kid going through life and now it's even more so it's like okay well now i have a missing brother on top of it and Mm -hmm. you know i feel like maybe i'm to blame some way i mean it's like there's so much going on there so it's like when you and then you add like a clear now you get a, a real good image of his father which gives you an even better image of now his mother and that dynamic and so well, you can uh, see why he had to grow up so fast right his father is just completely worthless yeah and and then so you could and then so you helps kind of paint the picture of maybe the more frazzled mother where because you're still trying to connect those dots a little bit mm-hmm. so it's his backstory of of this being this guy so now he's like okay well now he's creeping in the woods taking pictures and so it's easy to start to shift that like well, dude this guy's a weirdo <laughs> he's a creepy dude <laughs> well it's and it's well earned right it is it is a weirdo it, it is sort of a creepy thing to do at the same time he's a kid and he doesn't have the maturity level necessarily to know, like, this is an appropriate way to grieve. This is not an appropriate way to grieve. My brother's missing. What should I do? I'll go out there with my camera because that's what I do. I take photographs of things. Right. Uh, that's yeah. how I see the world. He's just processing the only way he knows how. Right. He doesn't have. He, what is he going to do? Go to. He can't go to any parent for for guidance so he goes out and he takes some pictures is it weird yeah but that's the thing right that's that's the beauty of what the show does is it gives you a glimpse into all of those weirdos we went to school with whether we were the weirdo or whether we sat next to the weirdo nobody cared about the backstory when you're that age right so it you get even a little bit more empathy right because you're like if you knew this kid was doing that without any of that backstory information he's just that quiet kid who's taking pictures you would be like that guy's dude he's a creep Total creep. And, and you could almost forgive that labeling because it is weird, right? And we, we're we not taking, and when we're in high school, the extra time to go, well, 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 well what is shaping this? Maybe this is a, this is a way to cope. Nobody's asking about coping You know what else mechanism. is weird? Hmm. I love this episode. I might even love it more than the first episode. I don't understand all these people having sex in front of a window. Right. <laughs> Like, the window doesn't have any drapes. It doesn't have any blinds. Like, wh- what are they doing? Like, I look, there's something weird about deciding to make love right in front of a window and you don't pull the curtains. So, I don't know why movie makers and television makers continue to use this. Yeah, because it does. It, it, you have to, that has to be a kink in order for you to do it. <laughs> 
you have to want someone to look through your window. There's got to be something that, that's about. I mean, you don't just forget to draw the curtains. Oh, you want them to see you wear the captain's hat. <laughs> <laughs> All of our friends are like, well, you can't leave the drapes open if he's rocking like the hat. Well, he'll take it off, I'm sure. No, no, no. That's his sex hat. Uh, all right. I'm going to roll the dice here. <laughs> we have a number five, which I think we've already used up. Yeah, we just used up. We have a six. This is Dr. Brenner and the Henchman. Martin Brenner arrives at the lab and learns that Joyce has called the police. The lab has intercepted and recorded her call. Brenner seems especially interested in the claim that Joyce has heard some kind of animal over the phone. Brenner asks about the whereabouts of both Elle and Will. Neither have been found. Brenner and crew put on hazmat suits and investigate the buyer's shed. So E.T. Oh, so much. I mean, there's uh, well, there's a confluence here. Right, so there's the hazmat suits, which is ET, but the I think that they modeled the shape of the the visor or the face shield after Alien, mm. and and then of course you got the the white vans, and we when we were kids, white vans like there was no if you had a white van, you were automatically evil, exactly, uh, because of course that that would be a kidnapper or an evil scientist or something. Um, although I did. At one point in my life, I did own a white van, Steve. I, I recall. It didn't have the... Uh, it, it had windows all around, though. Mm-hmm. Well, it, yeah. Be, there's yeah, a much different you... <laughs> look if there's no windows in the van. Yeah, I mean... Because I was wearing my hat, captain's hat a exactly. lot. Exactly. You wanted to see it. <laughs> I wanted everyone to see me wear the captain's hat in the van. <laughs> Let's talk about a little bit about Matthew Modine here. <clears throat> so, I think it's a brilliant casting. I don't know the last time I had seen Modine before this. When's the last time you had seen a Modine flick before Stranger Things? I mean, it was had to be like, I mean, we're talking rewatching Full Metal Jacket or something. Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I yeah. So he's Modine, one of these characters. Modine, he's great because he. Just shows up in your consciousness because of this. I think so. I think I had that. I think one of the first things I did was, "Is that Matthew Modine?" <laughs> and then you start to think to yourself, "When's the last time I ever said Modine?" <laughs> I don't know why I know his. And maybe it's an alliterative name or something. But it wasn't like he was a huge star, and yet I absolutely know who Matthew Modine is. Right. And so when I saw him in this, I thought, oh, this is perfect. He's he's the perfect evil scientist. And I think maybe part of it was because I remember him from Gross Anatomy. And so he actually went to med school. So I can totally, <laughs> I can totally imagine this guy sort of turning evil after Gross Anatomy. Well, it's great because it kind of keeps with the retro vibe to some degree, right? Because mm-hmm. like, it, it's like he's he's recognizable in a retro way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so and again i had the same reaction like oh wow perfect and i'm like but wait why (laughs) (laughs) why why is he a great evil scientist why why am i why am i jazzed about matthew modine i was never jazzed about matthew modine in his prime why is (laughs) why is this late version matthew modine suddenly got me all fired up and one could argue that 
and this sort of career resurgence was better than anything he ever did in the 80s. Exactly. Exactly. So going in, you know, the first time we watched this, there were really only two actors that had any notoriety. Winona Ryder and Matthew Modine. Mm. Were there any other characters in this that you had seen in anything else? Uh, a good question. I don't think so. I mean, there and might especially... be like an extra here and there that, you know, or sort of a bit part that you like, yeah, I've seen her in something else. But Right. Yeah. No, at this point, I'm, I, I'm being introduced to all of these, all of these children and all of these. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I, I'm wondering, and I think I read something that like the Hopper character was originally supposed to be like kind of a bigger name. Interesting. Okay. Huh. I think it was perfect the way that they didn't, right? You know, give us smatterings of Winona's and, and Modine's and, and, and call it good. All right. We got us have a four. This is the Nancy, Barb, Steve, Tommy, and Carol plot. Nancy and Barb are studying flashcards in the hallway when Steve interrupts, takes the flashcards, and invites them to come to the party at his house. The group notices that Jonathan is tacking up posters on the school bulletin board. Nancy awkwardly attempts to console Jonathan. After school, Nancy convinces Barb to go to the Harrington house with her. Barb and Nancy drive to the party, and Steve Harrington opens the door to the house like a god. It's such an arresting scene. They take turns shotgunning beers, and Barb cuts herself. Once Barb, Barb is gone, poor Barb. Once Barb is gone, the group jumps in the pool. The couples go upstairs to hook up, and Barb gets abducted from the diving board. So this scene at the house has a lot of direct echoes to Nightmare on Elm Street, and of course, the title of this episode is "The Weirdo on Maple Street." Right. So there's your first clue. But in addition to that, one of the, you know, the, the main brunette is named Nancy. You've got two couples, you know, in a house with no parents. Uh, clearly making out is happening in the house. And then a little bit later on, you've got a monster on the loose. So, yeah, so th- this is a clear homage to Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, no, no doubt. All right, so Steve, this is a story, uh, the whole Nancy, Barb, Steve, Tommy, and Carol story story about sort of upward mobility in a high school setting going from sort of a nerd status to something that's more of a popular kid status right this is kind of your story sure yeah i mean i guess i'm i'm nancy you're a little bit nancy but you i don't think you dated your way to the top how did how did that work for you um i uh freshman year you were a very quiet kid yeah, freshman year I was uh, yeah, I mean I was I was barb on a diving board just waiting for someone to to kill me. Um I it was by I the time I, you got to your senior year, you could run for class president as a joke. I mean there's it's one thing to run for class president, but to run as a joke <laughs> it kind of tells you a little bit some something about the social status of Steve Osborne. Yeah, I mean it was I think I I, I joked my way to uh popularity. Uh-huh. I kind of put more emphasis on, you know, kind of being the class clown. And, was there uh, a moment? Was there a moment in a classroom where you just thought, "All right, this is what I'm going to do, and this is going to change my fates"? Or looking back, thinking like Miss Miller's classroom, man. 
That was that really it was Miss Miller's classroom. It was Miss Miller's classroom. It so was I got to when, witness this. Yeah, when we were all like all we cared about was uh Saturday Night Live, specifically Dana Carvey impressions. All the time. And, was- and so we did it and then like it just became one of those things where we, you know, I started to make connections with people that were a little bit more on the popular side. And then um at the end of I think sophomore year, mm-hmm. you know, after kind of being that character a little bit more is when i was told by the the popular kids hey you're running for rally commissioner with us uh-huh. and i had not interesting okay. and so i didn't i had not reached out they just said they because they had decided hey we need a guy that's funny and this is this is the guy because like it was the group of members it was a group of guys that all sang together and they had like their acapella group and and then they wanted but they wanted i forgot also about have, the acapella group that's so funny but they also wanted it to be funny so uh so they just sort of told me and that was a that was kind of a big moment because i'm like at that point i was still sort of you know nerdy guy just kind of keeping it quiet would love to do things that were a little bit more out there but had never really had the opportunity so it just sort of was thrust upon me and then then that was it all right so you so you got in with that sort of performative group right Mm -hmm. Now, this was not necessarily the popular kid. This is not, these were not like classically popular kids. Yeah. They, it was interesting, though. I think our, our particular class really seemed to, to favor performance, not necessarily like in the sense of like, oh, like a play, but sort of like video. Uh, we, well, you video know. became really big right then. Right? Yeah. So we did sort of the, 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 access, had- the accessibility that you could create your own was just really coming in, into being sure the idea that we don't you don't have to you know, like you you could make your own movie you could make your own uh you know music video like that that was just starting to happen so that was a that was really big for our our class for for whatever reason yeah and that's i, I think that that's sort of captured in the season two of stranger things with the um sean astin character mm-hmm. he's really big but even in this scene kind of see that glimpse of radio shack in the downtown area right which is very of a time like you could go to radio shack and you could buy equipment and you could you could do something pretty nearly as good as saturday night live right um you know it would be it would be you know the production value would be a little bit below but that was the kind of the first time in history that a high school kid would have access to that kind of thing so then you were doing the um what was it the morning bulletin? Was that a video bulletin? Yeah, it was uh, live, which was even more interesting because I think we were one of the. I think there was maybe only two other schools in California that did it. Period. Uh-huh. So it was you know normally you'd have like the bulletins would be like over the intercom, but to have it like an actual live studio where we had you know two different cameras being operated, you had a director that would be going from camera one to camera two and like mm-hmm. the floor director would tell you which one to look at we would cut to a video we would cut to um announcements and you know all of that kind of stuff so that was such a, a big deal for us like <laughs> that's all we ever cared about so a little bit different than the 50s and 60s and even some of the 70s being popular at our high school had very little to do with being athletically you know, have any sort of athletic prowess or being a cheerleader even. Right. It was I mean, all it about certainly could, but it wasn't it wasn't like 
that wasn't the that wasn't the bulk of it. There was no ticket, you know, if you were the quarterback or whatever, there was no ticket to popularity there. But if you were doing the morning bulletin, you were making the entire school laugh. Yeah. And uh, clearly you you did it well enough to make people laugh, but there was a that's a pretty big shift in high school culture and really sort of uh, sort of usurping the role of that athlete in high school culture. Yeah. The idea of like an AV kid almost becoming more popular. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, advice to Nancy. Nancy's sort of on the come up, right? Yeah. So you're the you're someone who who did the come up. Do you have any good advice for Nancy? Uh, do your homework. Because <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, is that like it's a it can be very fleeting, right? Like it, it can be very easy to get so focused on that time frame that uh you know and, and i think that's and it's a thing i told my my kids the same thing i said you know fine be in the moment enjoy this to the most that you can but understand that this is a very finite and very um it's a small window of your life it'll 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 echo it'll definitely it'll create memories and it'll create regret as well but uh you know live in the moment but don't but but don't commit to the moment so that's interesting because uh, I think the first sort of group project that I was involved with in high school was with you on our dreams project in sophomore oh, year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I distinctly remember neither of us doing any work for that project and getting a pretty good grade out of it. And exactly. I remember it being kind of a revelation to me, like, oh, you can get an A just by total BS. Oh, yeah. I should yeah. have learned that lesson before because I think Aaron, in, in seventh grade, Aaron Pentagraph was handing in Run DMC lyrics. And passing it off as his own poetry. That's amazing. <laughs> Getting A's. <laughs> That's incredible. All right, I'm going to roll the dice. We have a number two, Steve. This is Mike, Lucas, Dustin, and L part two. So I divided the, these um, storylines into two parts. Part two. Lucas is worried about Will. Dustin is worried that L might have slept naked. <laughs> just a per- oh. <laughs> just a perfect window into the psyche of a twelve year old boy. <laughs> He's worried about. It. He can't stop thinking about. It, but at the same time, it really is worrying him. Um, later that day, Lucas and Dustin ride to the Wheelers to discover that L is still with Mike. Mike explains that she might know how to find Will. When Lucas's interrogation of L fails, he resolves to tell Mike's mom about the weirdo. L stops Lucas by slamming the door with her dark phoenix powers. Later that night, the boys explain the concept of friendship to Eleven. Eleven, in turn, explains the concept of the upside down by using the board game. And this right here, Steve, is where the episode just soars for me. Because this is very Goonies. This is very Stand By Me. Somehow, you've got a situation where these kids are going to have to deal with a very adult problem. But they do it in such a way where only the kids' imaginations equip them for this task. Like, how do you explain the upside down to an adult? They're not going to get it. How do you explain an upside down to a kid? All you do is you take a board game and you flip it over and you put a game piece on the back of the board. 
I don't understand. Hiding. Will is hiding? And that tells you everything you need to know about this story, and it also tells you that these kids are better equipped to deal with the problem than any of the adults in the story. Right, and it, and that's it's so well put, because it's this the the un the uh, unfettered imagination right the the uh, we as we get older i mean you know you see too much regular life to be able to fully embrace this lofty concept they're all going to have to deal with the upside down here um in a way that that doesn't make sense to them but the key is to to at least get to any kind of success is to believe it exists and to to not only believe it exists, but to believe that yeah. it, ex- it exists beyond you, and that you've, you know, once you've, and once you've accepted that, now you're more accepting to like almost any way to try to navigate. Yeah, it. Yeah, right? how is Hopper ever going to find a villain that he doesn't believe exists? Right. So there, there's that part of it. Um, you almost need someone who's a little bit, um, I don't know, kind of in between worlds. In a way that a kid, you know, the kid, the kids in this way represent that sort of liminal space. They're in between childhood where imagination dominates and in between and adulthood where logic dominates. I guess in the same way you could say like Tangina Baron is in between worlds as a spiritualist. Mm-hmm. Because I guess she's half elf or something. <laughs> well, again, right. So she's in between it because but like almost because just by virtue of believing it that's right you know, belief belief is the is the doorway um steve if anyone co- is interested in our poltergeist coverage of course they can search for our other podcast cocoons of horror yes oh jesus man that's a gucci and that ends our coverage for the episode proper but if you'd like to stick around and hear how the classic movie poltergeist relates to stranger things Here is an excerpt of our cousin podcast, Cocoons of Horror. Spoilers abound for Poltergeist, but before we get to that, let's take a break for capitalism. And so the movie-making trick that is being played here is that, okay, here are the experts. They've seen it all. They're going to come into this house, and they're going to be completely blown away, whether it be in the sense of divine wonder or in the sense of just sheer terror. They've right. never experienced anything like this. None, none of what you studied in a book has got you ready for this. Exactly. So I'm, I'm curious, does, did that work for you? Yeah, it did, actually. I kind of, because it was surprising. Uh, I appreciated it more watching it again. That like I felt that there was actually a pretty good level of care with that. Because, mm-hmm. because this would have been an opportunity to kind of get very expository mm-hmm. and explain a lot of this stuff. But the idea that they weren't necessarily the best people for the job kind of added another element of terror because you're like, well, right. well who do you turn to now? <laughs> you know? Okay. The answer is who do you turn to now? And that's Tangina Baron, right? Who we've previously referred to as Hobbit Quint. Yeah. There's one more thing. A terrible presence is in there with her. So much rage. So much betrayal. I've never sensed anything like it. I don't know what hovers over this house. 
that it was strong enough to punch a hole into this world and take your dog away from you. He keeps Caroline very close to it and away from the spectral light. It lies to her. It says things only a child can understand. It has been using her to restrain the others. To her, it simply is another child. To us, so they bring in i guess she's like the big guns or whatever but they also do something similar with her like she knows what she's talking about she's she's telling the family look you got to do what i say when i say it you don't question me even if it goes against your christian ideals or ideals as a mother you got to lie to your kids if i tell you to lie to your kids and they're all in. They're like, as long as you can get our daughter back, we're, we'll do whatever you say, Tangina Baron. Right. And then they go, they, they try the whole tug of war with the closet business. Right. And her idea is to like tie herself in the rope and go into the upside down or whatever you want to call it, get the girl and bring her back. So then Diane says, no, I, I, I'm her mother. I should go in and. Then Tangina says, well, you've never done this before. And Diane says, well, neither have you. And Tangina replies, you're right. You should do it. And so I think, okay, now you played this trick twice on me because I trust Tangina Baron knows what she's doing. And now we realize that like, she just kind of wing it. <laughs> exactly. And I, I kind of feel like the trick didn't work twice on me. I really oh, wish okay. that the Tangina Baron character would have been like, you know what? It's got to be a mother. It's got to be a mother who does this. I can't do it or something like that. But I think it maybe that was supposed to be played for a laugh or something. But for her to spin on a dime and basically say, I'm the expert. Yeah, I've never done this before. It didn't land for me. Because because you already did that game that had already been played. Yes, you already played that card, and so the second time you play that card is not going to be nearly as effective. Yeah, you know, and I think I got a little bit of that too, which was kind of like, okay, so no, I mean, I, I think maybe there was that element of like, yeah, look, we really none of us know what we're doing. Even even when it got down to it, it's like we are kind of grasping at straws. But again, maybe it was the presentation of it that that sort of mm-hmm. fell flat. I think that was the the whole point was that like. Even so, scientists in over their head, mm-hmm. spiritualists also in over their head. This is something that we just, as as the living, don't understand. Right. And 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 I and I and I think that that's still kind of important. You know, maybe that was an execution thing, right? But I think that was intended to be sort of exhausting. It's it's an, and I think maybe maybe then a little bit more exposition in that maybe would have actually been helpful. You know, you could have had right. uh, the Steve character just be like, look, I've done everything. I've got scientists can't help me. Spiritualists can't help me. What do we do? It's, like, it's just it's like, hey, we're the living. We're limited. Something like that goes a long way, right? So I think so. And I think this is where Stranger Things works. All right. Let, let's talk about the kind of the DNA uh, relative to Stranger Things. So first off, you've got a house that has the spirit of the child in it. Same thing with stranger things, you, you know, will is in the house, but he's in the upside down. So the mother and the child are separated. 
by sort of spiritual planes, but they're both in the same house. Right. So you've got that. Secondly, you've got sort of the, as we talked about, the monsters being represented by electricity. And But then the third thing that I thought was really interesting is the family matches. So if you think about the wheelers, you got the, the father, the mother, got an older daughter. You've got a younger son who's maybe not quite as old as Mike. And then you've got this very little, you know, just just more than a toddler doe-headed blonde daughter so the family is a complete blueprint and of course you've got that scene where the the youngest daughter has that kind of poltergeist experience in the buyer's house but here's where you get the curveball and certain things the experts are evil right so you don't have uh you don't have like the paranormal specialists or the tangina baron who's going to come in and help you out no, the experts at Hawkins Lab, they're going to come to your house and they're going to abduct your kids. They're going to they're going to do all kinds of horrible things because they actually want to they've got other plans. And so you've added that sort of additional evil element to it. And in that way, I think, yeah, that's the, the, you got the poltergeist DNA. And at the same time, I think you've got a more interesting and more complicated story. Right. And I and also I think to go with that, it's like it would kind of make a little more sense that the experts would be would be evil because they're dealing with it. Right. Like they're in order to be really dealing with it. There's a certain like dissection discovery, almost a disrespect that happens right. um, because the more you appreciate something, the less you are to maybe tinker with it. Right. And that's kind of what you end up with. What you see that with E.T. Right. These are the, the people that are going to essentially dissect and and investigate the alien so that they can acquire the knowledge. And in order to do so, you have to have sure. a certain callous disconnect, right? You can't, you can't be personally involved. So when Craig T. Nelson is talking with the paranormal scientist people, they're asking the ages of the family members. Mm-hmm. And he says his wife is 31. Oh no, 32. His daughter, 16. Right. Yeah. I think uh, a little a- bit of simple math. Is, yeah, yeah. Su- suggests that we've got a situation here, Steve. Right. Yes. Do we know how old uh, he is? I forget. Uh, he's at least 54. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know how old he is. I know that at one point during the, the flick, I was thinking there was a brief period of time when Craig T. Nelson and Chevy Chase were interchangeable. <laughs> like you could have put Chevy Chase in this movie. You could have put Craig T. Nelson in vacation. It would have been, you know, the, the slightly different acting choices, but come on. It, it's very, very over, aesthetically. Nothing's changed. <laughs> I saw the very same thing in a Stephen King movie once. This elevator wants to kill us. Next stop. Hell for our complete podcast about poltergeist. Search for Cocoons of Horror. And that is all for this week. 